Hello, and welcome to Conversations On, where the YMCA of the North engages with local and national leaders about their experiences, their insights, and their aspirations. I'm Henry Lake with WCCO Radio, and today, CEO Glenn Gunderson gets to know Kevin Warren, the commissioner of the Big Ten Conference and law attorney. Warren played college basketball, attended both graduate business and law school. He began his law career focusing on NCAA sports law and player career management. A former member of the NFL front office, Warren was later elected as the Big Ten Conference Commissioner in 2020. Well, welcome, Kevin Warren, Big Ten Commissioner. I am so excited for you to join us in studio. You are a leader for good, who I I have admired for a long time. Welcome. Glenn, thank you. It's good to see you. Uh, You look great. It's good to be here and, and look forward to spending some time together. Yeah, thank you. Hey, let's start going way back. I'd love to just learn and have our listeners learn a little bit about your childhood, where you've come from. Uh, share share a little history. Yeah, I was born and raised in Phoenix, Arizona. I'm the youngest of seven kids. Both of my parents were educators. Um, and so they just demanded excellence from my other brothers and sisters and, and really focused on raising us in a manner where that they wanted us to be hard workers and be diligent, uh, be transparent with each other, and, and to make sure that we had big dreams and, and were willing to work for them. And, and my dad would always talk about, you know, don't, don't be a person that cuts across the grass. And it, it, what that lesson was, you know, don't take shortcuts. And so I'm grateful to grow up with parents who were demanding and, and very disciplined and to, to focus on education and put us on the path hopefully toward uh, success in our lives. Man, we share that in common. I had both parents in education and a father-in-law in education, and there's something special about those values, right? And and oh, yeah. I think about the world we're living in now, and maybe some of those values need to come through more clearly for, for all in community. Hey, you had a setback. I remember reading about it, and I think you shared with me a while back, um, pretty big accident as a young person. Yeah. How did that shape you? What was the story? I, I, you know, I, I feel confident that I wouldn't be here today, but for that accident, it changed my life forever. Uh, I was uh, riding my bike at about 10 and a half years old in our neighborhood, going from our house up to uh, a school to play with some friends. And, and uh, out of nowhere, our car came, a, a person who lived in our neighborhood, they were actually looking at homes in our neighborhood, lost control of her car and ran up on the sidewalk going about 40 miles an hour and ran over me. And, um, and, and I was, by the grace of God, I... I was able to live and survive. And I'm a big believer. That was really my second act act in life. I think that's when I really recognized the fragility of life and how fast life goes and how your life can change literally in an instant. And uh, it was very painful. It's been the most pain that I ever felt physically, uh, but it helped me to grow uh, spiritually and emotionally uh, and mentally and just to develop an overall kind of grit uh, in my life. And But I spent um, a lot of time uh, in in traction in the hospital and then when i finally did come home i was in a full body cast all the way down to my right tippy toes and three quarters down my left leg with a pole in between and so when i say i've been flat on my back i truly had to live that way uh, for the better part uh, of a year and um and so there were some dark days that i had during that period and and not you know wondering if my bone would heal and my other act um, uh, injuries that i had and would I walk again and let alone play sports? And, and, uh, and as I said, I just feel like I was protected by the angel of the Lord and had a chance to heal and, and, and uh, rehab and, 
and work out hard and, and get back to, to full speed. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, I can say in our relationship, you've been such a mentor on the faith side of the equation. I really appreciate how you live out your faith and how you practice it. And I did had no idea how big an inflection point that was for you. And um, fast forward, the title of your book uh, coming out, Build Your Own Pool. How did that shape or how did that come to be? Yeah, it came from the accident because it was after the accident that I had a doctor who was very skilled, uh, maybe didn't have the best bedside manners, but he was very skilled. And I just learned that was the first time I really learned that you had to focus on what people said and not how they say it. Because during my exit interview uh, from the hospital, he said, and I asked him, you know, I got to get back into shape. I feel horribly, you know, hadn't really almost moved for a year, lost all of my muscle, you know, tone even as a kid. And, and, and you know, asked him, when could I start running? And he said, that's going to be a while, but you should really start working on pool aerobics and swimming. And my family did not have a pool in our backyard. And so I spoke with my parents. I knew I was going to get a somewhat of a small settlement uh, for the accident. And I was able to convince my parents uh, to use a third of my settlement to actually pay for and build a pool in our backyard. And that's where the name came from, you know, build your own pool. And really what it talks about is most of the great things in life, uh, when we look at our life, are the things that we really have to buy ourselves. And, and, and sometimes that means actually putting down money for it. But sometimes that means just buying them with, with, with a process and energy and, and learning or paying for them in grit. And, uh, and that's what I wanted to encourage. I want to encourage all the people who will read the book is just that. And that's OK. But and also to be willing to, to, to bet on yourself. And, you, you know, I can always tell uh, how serious someone is about a project if they're willing to write a check. A lot of people have great ideas or have great ideals for us, but they're not willing to write a check. And when someone's willing to write a check, I think it shows uh, kind of where they are. So that's the essence of the book is is that we all need to find those things and opportunities in life where we can build our own pools. Hmm. Congrats on working through that content. What a, an awesome a gift to community as that thing rolls out. So we we share a passion for basketball too. You yep. came into that game pretty early in life. What uh, talk talk about your basketball story? Yeah, I mean, I, I I grew up in a household of 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 athletes, and my dad had played professional football for a year and played college football at Arizona State. And my brother, uh, oldest brother, was one of the first black scholarship football student athletes at Stanford. So we were primarily a football family. But uh, one of my sisters actually married. Uh, John Shoemate, who was a first-round draft pick of the Phoenix Suns, and it was right after my accident. And growing around, you know, a professional athlete, and especially being under the Suns, I I liked basketball growing up, but I really fell in love with it, and and it became a a passion. And so I focused on it in, in you know in high school, and was fortunate to be able to play in college, and it meant so much to me. And I always tell the story that kind of chasing that basketball, that leather ball, and a pair of sneakers has taken me around the world, and was able to take me to college and keep me, you know, focused. And, and so that's why I'm a big believer and a big proponent in collegiate athletics and what it can do, uh, just even from a health and wellness standpoint for someone. And so it really has been a blessing to me. So now I suppose you got 14 favorite college basketball teams and a, a few coming along, along yeah, the way, not long, right? That's right. I love them. I love them all. And, uh, and it's been some great basketball. I mean, we have, we've had some, uh, great early season games. I mean, and uh, to see the Michigan State Gonzaga game on the aircraft carrier, and and even Michigan State and Kentucky, and 
uh, there's going to be some uh, great basketball this weekend. So, you know, I love all of our sports. I really do uh, respect and appreciate all of our institutions, but I'm a, I'm a big college basketball fan. Yeah, right there with you. We get a big old uh, bracket in the basement every year and, right. and excited to celebrate March once again as we, as we transition through this season. So what, how did you find um, the law? How did you come to choose a law degree and to work in law? It was interesting, you know, growing up, my parents, like I said, being both educators, but they, they, they really had conversations with me and they said, Kevin, there are really only three professions that are recession, re recession proof. I mean, this is even when I was a uh, junior high and, um, and, and they, and I said, what are those? They said, medicine, law, and, uh, and ministry. And, 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 and so I actually started off in pre-med. I was a biology major and the University of Pennsylvania, when I started, I ended up switching uh, to business. And so I majored in, in business. And when I got my business degree, it's amazing how these things just impact your life. I only knew one black lawyer and judge in our neighborhood. It was Judge Cecil Patterson, who was a lawyer uh, in Phoenix. And I always just was amazed that he always was so measured. You know, he looked good. He dressed sharp. His car was always clean. Uh, he had a beautiful wife, beautiful kids. And they just seemed measured. And he talked about things that I wanted to do, the importance of travel. And, and then I got a chance to go visit him in college to see him on the bench. And, and that's what really sparked the interest. But then my senior year in college there, we, I took a, uh, a business law course. And our adjunct professor was a gentleman by the name of Mitchell Laird. He was a lawyer in town in Phoenix. And, and he talked to me about, had I ever thought about you know, going to, uh, to law school? And he was the first one to challenge me about getting an MBA and a, and a JD. And then what really sparked is my freshman year at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, one of my dear friends, her brother, uh, was a Supreme Court uh, clerk, a law clerk, and he clerked for Thurgood Marshall. And they actually let me look in Judge Marshall's office. I never met Judge Marshall, but to go into the Supreme Court as a young 17-year-old freshman at the University of Pennsylvania, these are things I just heard about. And to look at probably the, the, the most um, prominent uh, African-American lawyer judge of all time to be able to look in his office really moved me. So between Judge Patterson growing up, looking at Thurgood Marshall's office, um, and then uh, Mitchell Laird challenging me my senior year to think about an NBA JD is what propelled me uh, forward to, to go and study the law at the University of Notre Dame. Hmm. Fantastic. A couple of good schools there, UPenn and Notre Dame and a little Grand Canyon as well, right? Yeah, it was uh, good. So I ended up getting my undergraduate degree from Grand Canyon University. That's helped really kind of uh, amplify my spiritual foundation and base. So I took a class in Old Testament and New Testament, did my MBA at Arizona State. And then I had a sister, the sister uh, who actually was married to John Shumate, the professional athlete, was living in South Bend because he was coaching uh, for Digger Phelps at Notre Dame. And, and, uh, and she had some health issues, and I, and I went to really help the family. So lived in their basement in my first year of law school and, and helped uh, take care of the kids and her and help out around the um, house as much as I could while I was in law school. Then John ended up getting the head coaching job at Southern Methodist University, so they left. So I stayed in South Bend and recruited my nephew, who was my oldest brother's son, to come to Notre Dame Law School. And so I graduated in 1990. He graduated in 1991, and he has a great uh, practice uh, here in Chicago at uh, Chapman, Chapman and Cutler. Wow, interesting. So, hey, what is the story with Chris Zorich? I think you were teaching maybe at Notre Dame, and yep. and uh, there was a story there that I'd love for you to share with our listeners. We're with 
Kevin Warren, Big Ten Commissioner. Uh, share that story. Yeah, so after I uh, practiced a couple years, I went back uh, to campus. One of my law professors, Patricia O'Hara, had become uh, Dean of Student Affairs, and so she offered me a job to come back. So uh, I worked in the Student Affairs Department and taught a class in law school, and one of our, our class uh, uh, mates introduced new Chris and new me and connected us, and he had just gotten drafted by the Chicago Bears, and and uh, his mother had passed, and, and uh, so I just helped him launch the Chris Zorich Foundation and, and get involved in the community. I ended up negotiating his next contract with the Chicago Bears, but just spent time, uh, you know, together. And that's how it was. And us being in the Notre Dame uh, community really made it special. Chris is a, a wonderful human being. I'm, I'm actually, my office is working on getting a dinner on the calendar uh, for us here and hopefully in the next month or so. So it was a blessing to be able to, to work with him. And he was the reason that I was able to launch my sports agency business. Yeah. Interesting. Hey, Kevin, I got to know you when you were serving on our YMCA board here in Minneapolis, the YMCA yep. the North. And I, I learned so many lessons from you, one of which was just your diligence, your work ethic. I know that it took me getting together with you early in the morning if I was going to catch you mm -hmm. uh, with all that uh, amazing traction you were making with the NFL through the Vikings. And and in Minneapolis, we really went through it right in the yep. summer of uh, 2020. And and you really were outspoken and stood up. Uh, in a pretty dynamic way uh, following George Floyd's murder. I'd love for you to reflect for our listeners a little bit about what was going on for you at that time, and then maybe fast forward to some of the work you're taking on with anti-racism at uh, the coalition at the Big Ten. But talk about where you were in summer of 20. Um, what prompted you to get after this and really help us drive a stronger equity dynamic in our communities? Yeah, thank you for asking that question. You know, I, I was uh, blessed to be able to come to the Big Ten in September of, of uh, 2019 as commissioner-elect. I was here transitioning for a couple months with Commissioner Jim Delaney. Uh, and so January 2nd of, of 2020 is when I actually be formally became commissioner. Then in March, uh, the global pandemic, COVID hit. And uh, then during that summer was a summer of discontent. You know, we had an election. We had the murder of George Floyd and had dealt with so many of the other things um, in our life and in society. I was moved so much because it was interesting. I spent a lot of time in 2020 uh, in our home in the Twin Cities in Minnesota. And I was having family members and friends call me all the time and said, hey, we're watching CNN and, and it looks like Minneapolis is burning. And that's when it really struck me because in our neighborhood in Edina, you know, it was so peace and tranquil and calm and the trees were beautiful and the birds were chirping and kids riding their bike and, and you know, all those different kind of things that were going on. And then just to know 15 miles away where George Floyd was murdered, it was, it was, uh, it was, it was like a war zone. Yeah. And that's when the reality hit me that even though you can be in the same environment, same city, you know, unless you're intentional and diligent and looking for in close proximity of these different issues that are going on, you can miss the opportunity uh, to help kind of right some of the wrongs in society. So I was moved to write a letter, uh, an open letter, and it was picked up by the Library of Congress. And, and we were able to, to launch our, our, our Equality Coalition in the Big Ten Conference and voter registration uh, initiative, but just to start dealing with some of these issues with race uh, in our society, which ended up morphing into this past summer, uh, the summer of 22, where we took 100 individuals uh, from the Big Ten Conference, from our member institutions, coaches, student-athletes, administrators, to Selma, Montgomery, Alabama, to uh, basically reenact the march from Montgomery to Selma 
but again, to put it into context, we were able to do it via bus. But I challenged a lot of the people on the trip is what are you willing to walk 54 miles for over five day period? And it was just for them to have a right to vote. And uh, and then we were able to walk across the Edmund Pettus Bridge and do all those incredible things from a civil rights standpoint uh, for all of us, even our young student athletes. But for us to recognize the, you know, the complex nature of life and the importance of uh, doing the right thing and and getting over barriers regarding race and and uh, different class systems, but that we're blessed to have the world that we live in, but we need to make sure that we never take advantage of it and take it for granted. Yeah, I appreciate your comments on equity and equality and the work you've done at the Big Ten. And I'm curious for you, I always see you as such this indomitable leader, so impassioned. And uh, what, uh, what might you reflect on in terms of the things you've gone through relative to race? How did race show up for you? Um, either as a young person or college student, did you ever have um, issues where um, you were made to feel less than or you were impacted negatively, adversely? Yeah, you know, yes, uh, very regularly. And my, my stories is also a little bit different than, than people read about in the book, but may not recognize you know, is that my mother uh, is, you know, half uh, Mexican-American. So my grandmother, Ramona Padilla, was actually born and raised in Guadalajara, Jalisco, Mexico. And so I'm 25%, you know, Hispanic and, and probably 25% uh, uh, American Indian and, and 50% black. But the reason why the Hispanic item is interesting, my grandmother was a maid and lived in the projects in Phoenix. For all the people that know Phoenix, she lived in the Mexican projects and, you know, as it was called on, on basically 19th Street and Buckeye, really rough area. And so you know, I was I was fortunate, and I say fortunate, to spend the majority of every weekend in the projects with my grandmother. And so that's when I really started to recognize uh, racism at a level. You know, I didn't know it in my neighborhood because it was all black neighborhood. And and uh, but when I would go there, and especially when I would go on visits with my grandmother, she was as I said a maid and clean homes. I remember us cleaning a home one time in Paradise Valley, Arizona, which is an absolutely beautiful area. And uh, one of her clients who she had had for probably 20 plus years uh, actually threw my glass away. I asked for a drink of water. And uh, uh, when we finish, you know, when, you know, from a maid standpoint, you go and make sure that's when you had shag carpet, you had to make sure the carpet was raked so it would stand up when the people were there. And, and you take out the garbage and make sure everything is, you know, the sink or are cleaned down and check the garbage one final time. And. I checked it and noticed uh, my glass was in there and I thought it was just an accident. Maybe it was broken and I look, I felt bad and took it back out. And uh, then before we left, then it was thrown in away again. And then I recognized that, you know, that was because I'd asked for a drink of water and it really hit me. It, it disturbed me. My grandmother never had a license, never flew on a plane, never drove a car. But I remember taking, um, you know, the bus, we would take the bus back to her, her projects. And, and I was really disturbed. I, I didn't understand it. And, uh, it, it didn't make sense. It was after my accident. So I was still trying to get my body in shape and didn't really feel good, you know, about myself. And then for that experience to happen, and I didn't sh share that story for literally, literally over 40 years, because fast forward when my wife Greta and I moved back to uh, Phoenix in between my time at the Lions and then coming to the Vikings is I was adamant about moving into Paradise Valley. And I remember we had this realtor who was trying to convince us driving around one day that you can get so much for your money in Mesa or Chandler and Tempe or uh, Awatuki. And I said, I want to live here 
And it was at that moment I shared that with Greta because she asked me, like, why are you so passionate? I said, this is the enclave of where this happened. And uh, it was almost for me to, as a thank you to my grandmother, to say that even for, you know, young black mixed blood uh, uh, kid who was black and Hispanic, whose grandmother was a maid, who, who she lived in the projects, that if you really lean into your life and pray and trust God and do the best you possibly can, truly, I have not. Uh, lived a perfect life. I've, I've made a lot of mistakes along the way, but I do the best I can every single day, try to help folks and be diligent and lean into it. You can build a beautiful life for yourself. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I've, I've felt it many times along the way, but but when it comes to race and racism with me, now others, I'll stand tall for them. But for me, I just tuck them in the deep parts of my brain and, and, uh, and, and hopefully uh, maybe book three or four that I'll be able to share all those. I have them all written down, but yeah. I'm just conscientious of not using those as a as a uh, uh, a crutch uh, to have anyone to feel you know feel for me. So I just kind of tuck tuck them in my brain, and they give me extra super extra dedicated uh, energy on a lot of the issues that I face uh, every day uh, when 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 race has come into it yeah. from a business context. But I I just I don't share it at all, and probably will take 99% of them to my grave. Wow. Thank you for that candor. And I think our listeners learn from these experiences, right? And I'm just grateful that you're, uh, you're willing to be candid in that respect. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about leadership. You, you come into the Big Ten replacing, you know, a, an iconic commissioner, yep. right? Jim Delaney served for a long time, really built uh, the Big Ten um, into something special. And now you're taking it to a whole new level. But how do you replace um, a legend like that, and you being a legend in your own right, what are the ways in which you take an organization forward uh, when you've had a strong leader like that, that you're succeeding? Glenn, that's a great question. And what I did, I think the thing that helped me the most is being the youngest of seven kids, you know, in, in the household. My parents taught us all, and they would tell me all the time, to be a great leader, you, you need to, to, to be a great servant. And you, you, you just can't lead to lead, but you got to learn how to serve to lead. And so I think growing up, youngest of seven kids, my accident really humbled me. And, and then I'm a big note taker. And, and every organization that I've worked in, I've studied the, the top leader leaders there and taken notes over the years and said, okay, here's what I learned at this organization. Here's what I learned at this law firm. Here's what I learned at this franchise. And, and would say that if I ever gotten a point of chance to lead. Here's some things that I that you know. What do I need to do more of, and what do I need to to stop doing uh, more of? I was in an organization where we had an iconic leader who retired, and someone took over, and I just watched how this new person that took over. Everything was in place and in order. It was a highly successful business, but instead of building on top of that, they almost became uh, offended by it and did everything that they possibly could to to diminish uh, that leader, the work of the prior leader had done. And I made a note to myself, you know, never do that, almost amplify and build it. Now, quite naturally, changes have to occur and people recognize that. I'm going to put my spin on it. You know, I see the world differently than a lot of other people. And I expect no different than the Vikings or any other place. The people who followed me there, they should put their spin on it. It's just like our children. They should put the spin on our family name, but just make sure it's a positive spin. And so coming in here was really important for me to embrace the 31 years that Jim Delaney had spent here and to think that he took over the conference in 1989 in his 40s 
and to be here for 31 years, you know, during the late 80s and the 90s and the 2000s, how things have morphed into where they are. It truly is amazing for him to be able to have done that. So what I try to do is to recognize the history and tradition of the Big Ten. This is over 125 year old uh, organization. We've only had five commissioners in the history of the Big Ten and to try to do everything I possibly can, as my parents taught me, to leave every situation better than it was when you found it. And uh, and that's what I've tried to do here. And and hopefully the other uh, five commissioners, you know, John Griffith and and uh, William Reed and Tug Wilson and Wayne Duke and Jim Delaney uh, would all be able to look at me and say that you carried the mantle forward in a in a way that had great style, grace, and class, and you made it better. Um, and then I hope I, I join their group one day to be able to look at the person who replaces me, and that we can that they can continue to carry this conference uh, forward into a positive manner. Man, talk about carrying the mantle. So we got to talk a little bit about adding UCLA and USC, and yeah. I'm sure some other uh, exciting things to come. You know, as a born and bred Minnesota fan, I cannot wait to see games at Pauley or at the Rose Bowl or right, the Coliseum. Right. That That is going to bring so much enthusiasm, I think, to the fan base. And there's um, I just a general excitement about the Big Ten. Share what you're seeing, you know, all these um, moves towards bigger and bigger power mm-hmm. conferences. What's the landscape look like? How's this NIL thing going to work out? I think the listeners would love to get your perspective on, on you know, what it's like in this realm right now. Yeah, this is a time of disruption in this industry. And so many times in life, people fear disruption. And I've been, you know, my life was disrupted uh, at 10 and a half years old. And I, I'm a big believer that but for that disruption, as I said earlier in this podcast with you, I wouldn't be here. So disruption absolutely created great energy uh, and focus and determination in my life. So disruption is good. And I think that's what you're going to see in college athletics for the next couple years. That's what you look what we're dealing with in the world and in the stock market and in uh, race relations is we're in a time of, of discontent, of, of disruption. But I think greatness is going to come out of that. So I just thought from, you know, adding schools that you have to look at this world holistically. And uh, and there was a big gap for us. You think Western Nebraska, there wasn't any Big Ten footprint. One of the things that we studied on, even when I got here, is that the number one location for our graduates out of our Big Ten institutions who don't stay in the Midwest is Southern California. So there's already a base, you know, there in Southern California that exists. And uh, so it was really important for us to uh, to welcome new members into the family, but who were who had similar ilk, uh, who highly academic schools, both USC and UCLA are high academic schools, are both members of the AAU, uh, high academic uh, and athletic history, you know, rich traditions. And then their alumni, when you start talking about Pauley Pavilion and the Coliseum and the Rose Bowl and, you know, all the people, Arthur Ashe, Jackie Robinson and Stan Smith and uh, Lou Alcindor, Cheryl uh, uh, Miller, and, and Jackie Joyner-Kersey. And I mean, just think of all the folks. And then business-wise, you know, Steven Spielberg. And, you know, the list goes on, the many Heisman Trophy winners and the coaches. And to be able to to welcome them into our family, and just even watching the game the other night between USC and uh, UCLA was was really, you know, exciting and intriguing. And uh, so I'm, I'm focused to make sure that we do everything we can to integrate them properly here, integrate their student athletes and, and continually build a strong uh, conference as we look for, forward. And, and all the things you mentioned, the transformation committee, the future of the NCA, name, image and likeness, you know, we're in a time of disruption. And I think 
those conferences, I have a mantra here at the Big Ten. We want to lead and not be led. And uh, in order to do that, you have to be prepared. So it's a blessing to, to work in this realm every single day. Mm, I love that. Lead and not be led. And, that, and just letting that, that momentum carry forward, right? Like uh, what I'm hearing you say is as a leader, you're embracing disruption. And I think so many times change becomes kind of a fear mantle for leaders versus mm -hmm. something to embrace. So thank you for that, uh, that clarity and that, that lesson. So where, um, where do you see us now as a community um, as we're going forward? I mean, you know, a couple of years since um, the, the, that summer of great unrest and, and we at the Y have been really, really driving at an equity-based message, trying to drive cultural competence, trying to bring the community along to, to really think in humanitarian terms, serving all. But where do we, where are we in this, um, in this dynamic right now? What do you see as opportunities for um, the why for leaders like me to carry this mantle forward? I think where we are is that, is that this is a time, just what you said, for great leaders uh, to become even more powerful, uh, to have a voice to amplify it. You know, it's so easy for all of us to look to the next person uh, to, to take the lead role. You know, I'm a big believer, you know, even, even if I'm walking down the street and see a piece of trash on the ground, pick it up. And because uh, we're in this together and it's not someone else's problem. I think this is all of our issues that we're dealing with and we need to come uh, to the table with solutions. I, 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 you know, I'm a big believer. So many people, and you learn it in law school, your first year in law school, the one thing they want to teach you is one, to learn a new language in law, but two, how to spot issues. And I remember our professor first day said, if you walk away out of your first year, learning a new language alone, how to spot issues, you had a successful year. But so many people live their lives as just issue spotters. They just point out all the issues that we have, and but they don't come up with any solutions. So, you know, uh, immature people can spot issues. And so I think what you have found a lot in our communities and our leaders, they're, they, they've spotted the issues. And that's great. That's the first step toward greatness. But now what we need is leaders who can not only spot the issues, uh, but who can go and solve the issues. And those are the people, those are the businesses that do well, those are the communities that tr thrive, those are the teams that are successful, is that they, they spot the issues, but then they attack the issues and solve the issues. And so, Glenn, from your position, especially with the why and your voice and the panache that you have in the Twin Cities community, and the Twin Cities community is such an unbelievable place uh, of people, uh, corporate base, and, and uh, is that it's time to now move on from spotting the issues, but really start solving some of these issues. And so I just encourage you and, and uh, pray for your strength uh, to be able to take a, uh, a leadership role. And so many times in life, I mentioned this, you know, recently, uh, my brother, my sister uh, took me up on one of the tallest buildings in New York as a kid, right after my accident. And, um, and I remembered when we were walking in the building, it was like a nice calm day. But then when we got up to the top, then it was really windy. And I was almost, you know, fearful to stand near the edge. And it, the reality, you know, hit me that, uh, yeah, it was windy. It's windy at the top. It's lonely in these positions. A lot of times people like you and I don't have others to really to talk with. Uh, but the view is beautiful and the impact is beautiful. And so I just encourage you to be strong, be steadfast, work hard, have grit, uh, not only spot those issues, but go and, and solve them and, and, and live your life on a daily basis because all that we have is 1,440 minutes. That's all that we have, regardless of our color, our race, our blood type, our 
health, our family, uh, our financial situation. We all have the same amount of time. And then I would just challenge you that there's so many great things that can be done in one single minute. Um, and there's some bad things that can be done in a single minute, but stay on the side of goodness and, and not only issue spot, but be, become a solution-based leader. Great suggestions. Hey, um, who are the leaders that really moved you, motivated you, maybe a mentor or mentors that, that you know, you look to as really influential in your leadership life? You know, I look at people who have, who have, again, I mean, primarily, I mean, both black and white people. But, after, you know, I'll tell you right now, I was blessed at MBA school. Um, I worked in the admissions office and um, and we we hosted uh, we would have these guest speakers. And we had Robert Crandall, Bob Crandall, the former iconic CEO of American Airlines, came in for uh, for a speech. And and I was chosen to be his host. Mm. And that changed my life. You know, just driving around in my little Toyota Corolla, and I remember I was so proud to wash and keep it clean and put gas in it. But to drive around him and to think a CEO of that magnitude allowing me to drive, you know, him was really powerful. But then to watch him and how he treated people, how he prepared, and then to watch him speak, you know, gave me a sense of 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 you know even like how American Airlines was built, and so. He's someone, and I probably wrote him a note after that, but I, I never had any further communication with him. But every time I was on an American Airlines flight on Sunday, and I thought about him, and it's a reminder to me that you never know how an impact like that could have to young people. But he, 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 he was the first CEO of a Fortune 150 company that I had met. I'd never been around one before. Yeah. But he, he motivated me. My parents motivated me. But then I've met some other people. Dun Tony Dungy, to be the first you know black man to to win a Super Bowl. Ken Chenault, who's a iconic CEO um, at American Express. I got a chance to connect him during the Vikings uh, deal that we were working on in 2004. He's still a friend to this day. He's someone I really lean on, you know, for advice and counsel because I always like the people. I'm not a big believer in people giving me advice who read about advice in a book and they're sharing it with me. I want people to have lived it. And so I know a Tony Dungy lived it. I know a Ken Chenault lived it as a black man in the world that we live in. And so not only can they give me good family and corporate and business advice, but we can talk candidly about what it means to be a, uh, you know, an African-American man uh, in this complex world that we leave it, live in. And both of those gentlemen, Coach Dungy and Ken Chenault, never make excuses. You know, they, they just they like they, they do more than just spot the issue. Uh, then they come up with solutions. So those are people that I really, you know, lean on uh, on a regular basis. Yeah, and little did that American Airlines CEO know the leader you'd be. Yeah. Kevin right. Warren, Big Ten Commissioner. What brings you hope? Uh, young people. And uh, every time I have a conversation with, you know, individuals in college, our student athletes uh, here at our Big Ten schools and elementary school schooners and even young people just the, the 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 vitality and the vibrance of what young people have you know brings me hope i just believe in people and uh and i believe in that the more that we can break down walls and visit each other churches and work together and sit side by side and travel with each other we recognize that we're the same we got the same bone density we have the same blood our eyes work the same way and you know we enjoy uh, the same things. We want the same things in life. When you talk to people, we want the same things in life. If we have kids, we want them to be healthy and to have good, healthy lives and do well. That's all we want, you know. And, uh, and so I've recognized the more that I'm around people, the more I recognize that 
we all have the same interests. And I think the more that we can get beyond color, uh, do what's right, push ourselves, strive to leave the world a better place. And, you know, it's interesting. My Both of my parents would always talk about, you know, everything you do, every piece of work that you touch, you know, do it like it's going to come back and benefit one of you, either you, your significant other, your children one day. You know, you've heard those stories about uh, the person working at a construction company and was toward retirement and the, the owner said, hey, I got a special person that I want you to design and build a house for. And, uh, you know, the per the construction worker, you know, thought it was just one of his owner's, you know, friends. So he did a good job, but didn't do a great job. And then at the end of the construction project, he turns around and hands in the keys and said, this house is for you. And uh, and he recognized like, wow, I was blessed with building my own house. And if I would have known that, yeah, maybe I would have measured this a little bit differently or would have put, you know, this uh, type of uh, floor or or, or countertop in there, even though it take it would have taken a little bit more because I was building it for me and my family. And that hit me recently. You know, we were actively involved in Twin Cities Orthopedics Performance Center. And I little did I know when we were designing that and thinking about how, you know, from a medical standpoint, we could service all of the wonderful people in the Twin Cities. Little did I know that my son Powers would have a surgery there recently, you know, on his foot. And it really resonated with me that I was said to myself, I'm so glad that I designed this for all the, the individuals who come here to need to get help. But little did I know that it would be here to be designed to have such a critical role in the, in the healing of my son. And that's, that's a reminder to just to always do your best because you never know what you put into the atmosphere uh, that will come back in a position. And that may bless you or may, may bless your kids or maybe three or four generations down the road that someone you know, says that, yeah, you know, your family was uh, very, uh, had an integral part in building this environment. And I just want to make sure whatever ecosystem I'm involved with, that I build it in a manner that, that uh, if people that I care about, uh, whether family or friends or the uh, benefactor uh, of working in that environment, that I would be proud to know that I did it the very best I possibly could. Kevin Warren, I so great, so grateful for your leadership lessons. I, I know you'll continue to spot those solutions and come up with amazing, amazing solutions. And we look forward to following the success of the Big Ten. And I'm just really grateful for our time together. Thank you. Well, I'm grateful for you and, and just keep, le keep leading and uh, stay, stay, stay strong. Uh, keep working with integrity and transparency and be gritty. And uh, I'm so grateful that you're um, for what you've done in the Twin Cities area, really around the country. I'm always here for you. So good to see you. And it's good to see you last week at Good Leadership. And I look forward to seeing you soon. Sounds great. Thank you, Kevin. All right. Take care. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Conversations On, where the YMCA of the North engages with local and national leaders helping to inspire you.